Welcome to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. My name is Dave Mons. I'm a student of psychology and philosophy and a professional pilot. My aim is to share big ideas from science and the humanities to get you thinking and to help you make sense of the world. It seemed like she'd been crying for days. Like every new parent, we didn't quite know what the hell was going on. I mean, sure, babies cry, but this was getting ridiculous. We tried different types of bottles, different types of teats on the bottles. We tried formula. And shit, that stuff's expensive. We tried bundling her up in a swaddle, then letting her hands go free. We even drove around for hours in the middle of the night until she'd finally fall asleep, only for her to wake up and start crying again the second we pulled into the driveway. This went on for weeks, until a friend suggested we should take her to an osteopath. An osteo who? I asked. Oh, he's great. My cousin took her baby to him and bang, just like that, she set her right down and they've had no problems since. He said it was because of the traumatic birth. The baby just needed to be corrected. Right, I thought. Every birth is pretty bloody traumatic as far as I'm concerned. And I was sceptical and my wife wasn't totally convinced either. But we were out of options. What's the harm, we thought. And so, we made an appointment. We arrived at the osteopath's office. It was similar to every other doctor's office we'd been to. It had the usual placards and brochures and that familiar, sterile yet comforting feel, coupled with a library-like efficiency of a professional practice. I started thinking, maybe this is legit after all. After waiting for the requisite period of time, we were finally called into the consultation room, and in walked the osteopath, along with two, or was it three, other people. I don't know who they were, but they all looked on with adoring interest as he took the baby from my wife and began to look her over. He shook her around a bit, wobbled her back and forth, and then laid her on the bed and started to move her arms and legs around. He didn't say much, but he did make a lot of hmms and ahas as he worked. Then he cradled my baby daughter's head in his hands and jerked on her neck abruptly. She began to cry immediately, and I stood up. Hey, listen here, I said as he held out a pacifying arm. It's fine. See how she is slightly contracted on this side. Did she have a traumatic birth? he asked. Well, yes, they all are, aren't they? I said. Yes, I thought so, he replied, ignoring my remark. I'll just adjust her here and here, he said as he continued jerking her arms and legs around and pressing on her delicate spine. Righto, that's enough, mate. All done. Thank you, I said as I picked up my daughter from the bed and we made our way toward the exit. Total quackery, I said to my wife as we left with our still crying baby. Fuck that guy. We'd had an encounter with pseudoscience. Now, now, I hear you saying, I've been to old mate Osteo for years and he sorted me out no end. Well, that may be so, but you need to know, there is no scientific basis for what he does. Yeah, we're all a machine made up of skeleton, muscles, ligaments and tendons, so it makes sense that manipulating and massaging those structures can help. And it does. But they never really get to the bottom of things, they treat the symptoms and not the causes. And a lot of the time, they do far more, which is where things get, frankly, weird. Craniosacral therapy, chelation, homeopathy, the list goes on. But this episode isn't just about osteopaths and it's not even about pseudoscience specifically. It's about science and scientific methodologies. Like why some things can claim to be scientific and some things can't and what that really means. 
There's a real risk that this episode will put some of you at odds, and aside from the personal experience I've just recounted, I'm not going to spend the next 20 minutes disparaging practitioners whose methods I don't understand or agree with. That's for each individual to decide for themselves. But I do want to make sure that you're equipped with a few tools of reason so you can make your own judgments with an informed perspective. So let's begin with some broad definitions of what makes science science and what makes pseudoscience not. Science is defined as a systematic and logical approach to understanding how things work. The word science is derived from the Latin term scientia, meaning knowledge based on demonstrable and reproducible data. That means assertions made by science must have been proved through experiment and data, not just opinion, and they must be able to be replicated in the future. This means that science can only come from things we can observe and measure. So that immediately rules out things not of the natural world, like things that are supernatural or undetectable or measurable. Science is also about the scientific method. The scientific method is the way in which science is done. This sounds pretty obvious, but it's not about what is found. It is how we can be sure that what is found is real, at least as far as the tools we have to make those determinations. This means that science can always be proven wrong when new information, techniques and technologies become available. Finding the historical origin of the scientific method is problematic, but many agree that it began with Greek philosophy. Plato, for instance, was interested in verifiable facts, things that could be known about the world. But he thought that the best way to reach conclusions like this was through reason alone, so-called a priori knowledge. Then Aristotle came along and said, no, we must be able to observe things as they are, not just deduce how they should be. Measurement and observation is what is thought of as empirical. It is a statement of fact about the natural world according to our basic assumptions and laws determined by mathematics, logic and reason, and we derive these from observation. Another key aspect of the scientific method is how we take those measurements. The experimental method which is used today is largely similar to one proposed by Islamic scholar Ibn al-Haytham around 1000 AD. He said we must identify the problem, come up with a hypothesis, which is a question or assumption, and then test that hypothesis through experiment. Once we've taken our measurements, we must carefully study the results and reach a conclusion about what they're saying about the hypothesis and then publish the findings. This allows our work to be tested and critiqued by others. Al-Haytham understood that the more tightly controlled the experimental conditions were, the more precise our measurements can be, and the more confident we can be in our conclusions. The problem with this, though, is that the more contrived and constrained the experiment is, the less likely it is to accurately replicate the real world. So our results may prove a relationship in the precise way that we observed it, but it may lack ecological validity, that is, it might not be what actually happens out there in the world. Next we have the Renaissance period, where Europe transitioned out of the Middle Ages during the 15th and 16th centuries. One of the most influential early scientists during this period was Francis Bacon, who moved us toward inductive reasoning. This was something of a breakthrough, because it allowed us to make more general assumptions about the universe and the physical world from the conclusions drawn from specific observations. In contrast to deductive reasoning, where we deduce what must have caused something specific to happen that Aristotle felt was the only pathway to knowledge. Inductive reasoning is more about probability. If something happened in one situation, then it is more or less likely to behave that way in other contexts. We call these types of inductive assumptions theories, 
We don't know for sure, but until a better explanation comes along, then we have confidence in the way we think things probably are based on certain observations that we have made. Clearly, we need both deductive and inductive reasoning, and both methods are complementary to each other in modern science. We deduce certain facts and use these to come up with inductive theories which we can figure out more sophisticated ways of testing so we can increase our deductive knowledge about the world. The beauty of this lies in the use of reason to drive our understanding of the world, a kind of harmony between Platonic and Baconian methodologies. Then we move to Italy toward the end of the Renaissance period, where Galileo was busy studying the movement of the Earth, Moon, Sun and planets and is considered a founding father of the scientific discipline of physics, through observation and a lot of mathematics. Galileo leveraged off of inductive reasoning to further knowledge by accepting that we can never truly know everything as there are too many things we can't control or measure through our experiments. We have to accept a close approximation of how we think things are, because close enough is good enough for getting us to a theory. But the more we measure and carry out experiments which add thin layers to what we know, the more confident we can become in our theories. Galileo paid a heavy price for his dedication to science. He came under a lot of pressure from the Catholic Church when he asserted that his observations proved Copernicus's claim that it wasn't the Earth at the centre of the universe, but the Sun, which is obviously wrong too. These types of discoveries characterise this period often referred to as the scientific revolution. You could even say that Galileo had the last laugh, as one of his middle fingers is now displayed in a glass case in a museum dedicated to his memory in Florence, Italy, as if locked in a perpetual up yours to the establishment. As we get closer to modern science, figures like Isaac Newton and Einstein appear. They began to truly capitalise on the combination of deductive and inductive reasoning. But two camps emerged, the instrumentalists and the realists. The instrumentalists thought of the discoveries of science, say the laws of physics, as instruments which we humans have designed to make sense of our reality and predict the way in which things will behave. For instance, I can come up with a theory of atoms and molecules that explain how the microphone that I'm speaking into has physical properties, and that the electrical energy that is generated is being recorded on my computer, and these do useful work for me, obviously, but these theories aren't really saying anything about the nature of reality. They are just useful in allowing me to access certain features of reality in a sort of language I can speak. Well, not me, but scientists and engineers who are clever enough to design these sorts of things. Not surprisingly, this view is often favoured by physicists. But it's kind of difficult to grasp this concept because obviously laws and theories have been very useful. They do seem to make certain things happen. So how can they not be describing reality? Well, think of a ruler. Did God hand Moses a piece of wood and say, here is the centimetre, or was it the inch? We use rulers to measure things, but there are many different units. The ruler is still a useful thing which tells us how long or wide something is. But what the actual value is, is kind of irrelevant as far as nature is concerned. A tree doesn't grow because it needs to grow x metres high or y metres wide. The ruler is like the theory we have devised for how something works, it is the instrument. The theory is useful for making things happen. It has utility, and therefore that carries a certain amount of truth. But it is not describing some absolute, some hidden truth about the universe that exists. It's just waiting for us to discover it. The viewpoint that does think this way is called scientific realism, that knowledge is out there waiting to be discovered, independent of the minds of humans. 
And when we come up with theories which we can use to predict the future with a high level of accuracy, then we have discovered another part of this universal knowledge, some fundamental truth. This doesn't mean we can predict the lottery. We haven't found a good theory for making randomness not be random yet. But when we press send on a WhatsApp message, we are predicting the future as we know that there is an almost 100% certainty that the message will reach its destination. The many systems and laws and principles that govern how the app works, how the chips in my phone work and how the signals that move it through the atmosphere and into space all the way back to your phone at the other end, they all work together to predict the future with a high level of confidence. Stalwarts of the natural sciences generally go in for this scientific realism ontology, that objective truths about the universe are there waiting to be discovered, and modern science largely operates on this assumption. But the story doesn't quite end there. Scientists were comfortable with the assertion that claims about knowledge must be measurable and observable, and Islamic scientists also added the dimension of the peer review, publishing work so others can try to replicate it or find ways in which it could be wrong. And this methodology was advanced further in Western science by philosopher of science Karl Popper in the early part of the 20th century, when he realised that if we just accept inductive reasoning as science, then anyone can make a claim about anything, and they often did. So for a claim like a theory to be truly scientific, it must be able to be tested and falsified. If I make a claim about something that you can't prove one way or the other, then it can't be used as the basis of science. For instance, I could claim to you that all rocks on Mars are red. It wouldn't be easy, but we could collect a sample of rocks from around Mars and see if I was right about my claim. But if the possibility exists that there is just one black rock on Mars, then my theory can be falsified. Even if we don't find a black rock, or even if we don't even go and look for one, the very fact that there could be just one means my theory can be tested and potentially proved wrong. But if I claim that we are all surrounded by a magical energy field, we just don't have a way of measuring it, then I can't be proved wrong. We can't test my claim. Such a claim, therefore, according to Popper, is unfalsifiable and cannot qualify as knowledge according to the scientific method. For this reason, early attempts to understand the inner workings of the mind and body were considered pseudoscientific. Indeed, many practices that continue today still reside in this category, like osteopathy and feng shui, the healing powers of crystals, and many, many others. For a long time, psychology was just another one of those practices that made claims that couldn't be tested, as it dealt not in certainties and empirical evidence, but in notions of how things might work, but at a very individual level. Sigmund Freud made a significant contribution to psychology through his development of psychoanalysis. However, his work became dogmatic and is not falsifiable or predictive, two key criterion of the scientific method. During the 1960s, social psychologists also began to make claims about human behaviour based on methods thought of as scientific, things like the notorious Milgram obedience experiments and others. It seemed that we could reduce certain behaviours down to hypotheses and conclusions to build theories of how humans operate in certain conditions, a viewpoint known as positivism. But in recent times, we have seen a replication crisis emerge in psychology and the social sciences as the results of classic studies have been revisited and they cannot be reproduced. This has undermined the credibility of psychology as a scientific discipline, but perhaps this is not so much an issue with the concept that we act according to certain patterns but just that the scientific method is not suitable for making claims about human behaviour. We are too nuanced and individual to be generalised and reduced to theories that can account for our many differences and the many variables of life and nature. 
We can neither be measured by instrumentalists nor offer some hidden truth about human nature to scientific realists. The scientific method, therefore, has its limits. It can't be the only way we can come to an understanding about the world, and especially our place in it. It is but one ontology or paradigm for a way of thinking, but there are others. This brings us to the field of critical social psychology, which rejects the positivist paradigm of science altogether. This is a more contemporary view, which relates specifically to human behaviour, and particularly the social world. Critical social psychologists reject the notion that there are really truths and facts about the world just waiting to be discovered, if only we ask the right questions, or make just the right measurements. They argue that such a binary, black and white approach misses the temporal context of behaviour. We exist in a certain place and time, and act according to the norms and beliefs that characterise that time period. Our personalities and behaviours cannot be reduced to mere facts as in the physical sciences. Just look at the current unrest around the world today. Statues are being toppled because the figures they represent behaved in ways which we today consider abhorrent. Well, and they are. We judge them on their behaviour, which at that time was accepted by society. That's why they had statues built to honour them after all. Society is constantly shifting and evolving, and as such, reality is something we construct as we go along. Political and social influences shape the behaviour of societies. How we give meaning to things, establish relationships and conduct ourselves in a social world is not some fixed truth that we just execute according to a set of rules that we could discover and write down as concise bullet points. In human social behaviour, there are no absolutes, even though we may feel passionately about certain issues. It is constantly shifting and being redefined. Clearly then, questions of human behaviour and how we can apply scientific methodologies to study it are as much questions for philosophers as for scientists. The notion that reality is formed by our social experience of it is known as social constructionism, and its key currency is language. We take language for granted. It is such an intrinsic part of our lives that we tend not to think of it beyond its role as a tool through which we communicate. Words carry certain literal meanings, and when we engage in dialogue with each other, we're just transferring information. This has been the traditional view of social psychologists. Yet a constructionist approach considers language to be the very medium through which reality itself is constructed, hence the name. What does this really mean, though? Something like two-thirds or more of what we talk about is other people. But we also use language to assemble our thoughts on everything that happens in our lives. Toddlers might know around 50 words at age two, but by the time they reach adulthood, they know well over 15,000. Through words, we construct meaning in our lives. We assign value to things. The argument here is not that we use language to share our thoughts and feelings, it's that it is through language that we construct those thoughts and feelings. It is the expression of language itself that forms our individual social realities and connect them with those of others. But we have a problem here. If language is the means through which humans actually construct reality and behaviour, then how can we measure and understand it using the techniques science has built up over thousands of years? Can we use inductive or deductive reasoning to propose hypotheses, design experiments and then make theories about human behaviour? Well, many do do that, yes. But we end up with controversy and a replication crisis and a loss of credibility. Social constructionists take a different tack and disregard the positivist approach to scientific research altogether. They are content to just observe what is actually happening and not try to compartmentalise it. One technique they use for these observations is discursive analysis. This is a method of looking very closely at the language people use in order to understand what they are really trying to say. 
Rather than just taking words at face value, they are looking for the meaning buried within the words and between the lines. A question that might be asked is, what work is the speaker doing with their words? We tend to do this anyway. When we use our intuition, we can sense that someone isn't being quite genuine, or that there may be incongruency between what they are saying and how they are behaving. Discursive analysis looks deep into language, mostly through speech but also written text as well, to find these hidden meanings. Of course, this is not an exact science, but this type of research doesn't make objective claims about humanity in general, and it may also be complicated by the social biases of the interviewer or the researcher. But social constructionists don't attempt to make the same types of claims as positivist scientists. They just try to study the language used by individuals or small groups and try to understand what realities are being constructed and represented through speech. This has been effective at understanding themes like racism, sexism and other marginal issues which may not be obvious when considering just the words themselves. So as we have seen, science is complicated and its methodologies have evolved considerably over time and continue to do so. The scientific method is not just one thing, it is many, with no one size fits all. This is not to say that we can disregard claims that pseudoscience is quackery. But it is to say that not all science need consist of tightly controlled experimental settings, probabilities and statistical significance. We have reached the level of knowledge of the universe that we have today because the paradigm of knowledge has been continually challenged and we have updated our assumptions and ontologies as we've found new evidence and ways of getting at the truth. Science has made our lives easier and more convenient than at any other time in human history. Perhaps it's too good. Hunger is virtually a relic of history, but now we have pandemics of obesity, heart disease and cancers which may be attributable to the success of science in designing foods we can't stop eating but which do us no good. Nearly 60% of the global population has access to the internet now, and free access to more information than we could consume in a thousand lifetimes is freeing minds from the chains of ignorance. But there is also a lot of bad information out there that corrupts and misleads and can be used for malevolent purposes. But science is still the best tool we have for making life better for everyone. It will eventually help us move beyond the coronavirus pandemic and one day it might even take us to Mars and beyond. Whether it aims to understand the smallest details of the physical world or the miracle of life itself, real science is our best resource. It isn't perfect, but it is open about its flaws and is ready to accept new ways of doing things as each generation raises more and more gifted people with the courage and desire to ask, why? How we get to the knowledge science provides and what it means are open questions which have no answers, just as all big questions never seem to. And if you do follow pseudoscientific practices, then good for you. But don't be confused about what real science is, and importantly, how to tell the difference. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. You can find us on Facebook at The Here and Now Podcast or Twitter at Here Now Podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to keep up to date with all of the latest episodes. And if you want to support the podcast, you can find us on Patreon or leave a review at the Apple Podcasts app. You can reach out to me via the pages or email thehereandnow at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. <laughs>